you came out pretty quick. What was the stuff that was like getting you to want to play the kind of music that you played in Thursday? Because your first album is very different from what you crossed over with. We had this really huge gap between our ability as players and what we were dreaming of doing, which really steered us in different directions at different times. Like our drummer, I gave him a quicksand record. This is a really great drummer. I gave him that and I gave him shift. And that was sort of like all of us were just trying to learn how to play. You know, we had a bunch of ambitions that were kind of like, you know, we were watching bands like Ink and Dagger, but, you know, and it's like, like that was exciting to me because it was like a real, there was a real danger in hardcore. And I, there's nothing really dangerous about punk or hardcore anymore. And so when I saw Ink and Dagger and it felt dangerous, it felt sort of out of control. And like, these guys are like, I can't believe they're not straight edge. They're actually like super fucking high on stage. That was like one thing that I found really exciting was doing something dangerous. And the other thing that I found really exciting was like in an answer to the kind of macho hardcore thing, like the dance mosh metal hardcore thing. I really, you know, I really did love the kind of bands like you and I stuff that was like so hard on the sleeve. And to me, there was actually like a crossover there, which was if you were not going to be sarcastic, if you were going to be like direct and real in that way you could also be dangerous i had a bunch of like different conflicting things in my head about that and that sort of also returned me to like seeing quicksand do a smith song yeah i was a goth kid like through and through and i thought i had to be embarrassed of that like you know i lost my virginity to like a goth girl and like downward spiral came out on my 15th birthday people now trying to make sense of and, and walk backwards through emo. I don't find emo that mystifying. You know, basically, if you go and buy band in DC, Cynthia Connolly's book of photographs, that's it. It's like there were punk kids and then punk became macho. And so they were like, yeah, I, I want to listen to The Cure. Is that cool? Or do I have to start a band about it? For me, the definition of emo, what I would consider a band that sort of defines what emo was, would be vitreous humor.
the people who were already sort of like had been through their cycles of independent music and punk and hardcore and all this shit, a band like Vitreous Humor is very downcast and kind of, you know, plodding. And there's a depression that has to do as much with the fact that the music that's made your social life happen is starting to not make your social life happen. I remember getting to Atlanta and there was one person standing in a kitchen watching Thursday and I opened the door and there were seven people playing cards next door and they didn't come next like you know what I mean it was like wow we drove 10 hours and you didn't walk five feet for 20 minutes because when we were playing basement shows we had our 20 minute set so that when the cops came and broke it up like we had played our good songs already yeah you had to front load your set because there was going to be a noise complaint so you had to get your five you know smash singles right off the top the night that reversal of man broke up it was in, in our basement. I remember they played, I think, seven minutes, and they still played everything that I wanted to hear. Uh. <laughs> At least where I was, my scene, my part, my little, like, northeast to D.C. scene, we called everything hardcore. Nothing was emo. Like, nobody used the word emo for anything. But every band that was hardcore was like Braid and Q and Not You. You know, all these bands were hardcore bands. When I thought of punk, I thought of like Blink-182 and No Effects. Stuff that to me didn't speak to me anymore. Even though we never called it emo, it's obvious what we were talking about back then was, you know, what people think of as emo now. When you say that, a lot of the stuff you're talking about is what was already pop punk to my crew. So, I mean, I think we almost have a five-year split here. Blink was on Cargo when we saw them um, in Rochester. They had done nothing it was cheshire cats it was like just getting in a van and fucking around but by the time pop punk crossed over because of dookie that was my junior year of college it's not like it's bad music it's just like rancid was really intense two years ago and now they're fucking poison yeah i uh, i mean i am definitely like that is the age divide that we're along because i was in high school when i got a ride to like woodstock 94 So I was in high school, like maybe it was my freshman year, I think that, yeah, it would be my freshman year. And like there's footage of, because I had loved Green Day, you know, a couple of years earlier, um, there's footage of like me throwing mud at them. Cause I was like, not, I wasn't because I was a little snot nosed freshman in high school. So to me, like knowing, being able to tell that they were about to cross over to such a mainstream audience, you know, I was at that little uh, bratty age where it was like a betrayal because other people liked them. So like there's footage of me, you can see me being a little jerk throwing mud at them. When I look at the window that you and I sort of have the gap, the band that gets lost there is Screeching Weasel. That's totally true. Because for me, Screeching Weasel was the band that I knew Lifetime really liked, but I loved Lifetime and I didn't really know Screeching Weasel. My Brain Hurts came out at the same time as Nirvana's Nevermind. Whoa, I've never thought about that. That's crazy. That came out in March, I think, of 91, and then Nevermind came out in September, so that's the same year that I'm painting houses the summer before college. So the people that were older and smart, like you, you guys, you know, like your, your friends, your crew, um, looked at us like you know, a little sideways because they didn't see that it was a reaction on our part and that we weren't just casting ourselves as the new romantics or something like that. So, so let's go through the whole thing. So you're starting and 
you know, you have all this goth stuff you're listening to. I you mean, know, I was trying to be a writer. Like I didn't care about singing. Like you said, you give the singer a pass. All I cared about was being a writer. And I was really into this kind of like postmodern return to sincerity, the sort of like give up on, you know, sarcasm and irony and that like protection. And, you know, but I was also conflating that with like sort of this other darkness and this sort of experimental form stuff, Gertrude Stein and Michael Palmer. And like, I really love this idea that we're going to get rid of the, the mosh core uh, what we used to call ex-boyfriend core, like the sort of like, you fucking bitch, you broke my heart and I'm going to kill you. Like, Wait, did you, did you hear Swizz? <laughs> <laughs> you lie to me, bitch. That was awful. That was awful, uh, awful. But we totally listened to it. I we did. Swiss, yeah. Okay. I got to say. <laughs> but anyway, um, so I had this idea that we were going to change the narration from the I and the you and all that. And there was going to be this new we that we sang of, you know, there was this new voice. And so there was a lot, you know, I think that's the reason why our first record is so uneven, especially compared to when we broke through later was that we wanted everything all at once. We wanted to be dangerous and we wanted to be vulnerable and we wanted to be sincere, but we wanted to be formal and we wanted to be, you know, there were all these different things. That's what really gets lost in looking back at emo is you really lose the context. You really lose what people were reacting to. And you just think that, uh, Kids that listen to emo now and go to those emo nights, they all kind of like wink and laugh about how like silly it is. And it's like, it wasn't like that at the time. We weren't all being like tongue in cheek. You know, we weren't, we really weren't. There were a lot of us doing it from different linear bands of experience. So everyone had different timelines they were reacting to and that they felt that music hadn't gone the way they wanted or they wanted it to be more intellectual and bookish. That's the whole knock that you get, which is ultimately true on the original, you know, emo bands that everyone brings up, Grey Matter, Rights of Spring, Marginal Man, all this stuff. I, I mean, three was fucking amazing. And Discord kind of had that evolution, and that's why it's always about Discord. Those kids were in the same fucking high school, so it ended up becoming really famous, but it's a perfect encapsulation of that growth pattern, and you go through it at different times with different pop culture, you know, bombing at you. So you, you're going through that fight, and you have this first album, and then you really quickly, because you're playing with Midtown and Saves the Day, you get signed to Victory like fucking that it's even more unlikely than that it's so like random we were on eyeball right we were on this new jersey label that had mostly done hardcore until thursday and actually when thursday started doing well one of the two partners quit because he was like i put out h2o's first thing i'm not gonna put this thursday shit and we're still friends like i always laugh with him about it because like he lost out on all the money that thursday made and and lost out on all the money that my chemical romance made because he hated thursday so much you know we laugh about that now it's like yeah man you had great taste enough to not want to be associated with us but man did you lose out like i wish it was a video and not a podcast so i could put that little line drawing of the guy who's like i kept it real and it's like yeah, the old guy with the <laughs> yeah it's that guy it is that guy and uh alex at the time who you know who signed us saw how quickly things were blowing up just in new jersey we weren't headlining because you know we didn't think anybody knew us so we were like wow like the band that we're opening for is getting really big and then they'd all be singing our songs and we were like whoa wait a second this is for us
So that was really shocking. And Alex from Eyeball said, you have a really small window. You guys should all drop out of school and do this. And we were like, man, this is too weird. Like, we can't do that. Like, I was about to be a teacher. I had, like, perfect grades. I was, like, in my last semester. I wasn't going to drop out. He was like, look, I'll get you signed to Victory. Like, take one year off school and just try. And I had never met Tony Victory when we signed. And my first conversation with him after we signed, but before Full Collapse came out, was this thing that made my blood turn fucking cold, man. He called me and he asked me what labels I liked. And I went on a thing about Discord. You know, we're talking about Discord. I said, you know, Discord means everything to me. Like, you know, I remember going to see Fugazi the week that Nilana Kill Taker came out. I saw them the week that fucking uh, Red Medicine came out. I saw, you know, I just went through a whole thing about Fugazi and, you know, my friends in Q&IU. And I went into a thing about Jawbot. I just went through a whole thing about, like, how much all that meant to me. And he said, Discord means less than nothing. And I just, my heart dropped in my stomach and he said, if it's not on Victory, it literally doesn't matter. I signed to a label without meeting the president and I just thought, what did I do? What did I do? Because we made full collapse. He hadn't heard it yet, but I knew it was special. Like I knew, I, I just, I just, I was so, I was distraught after that because then I started going to shows and meeting other Victory bands and they would laugh when I'd say like, we just signed to Victory. They'd laugh and be like, good luck, kid. Ha! Ah. Let's paint the landscape for people who are too young necessarily to have known. At that time, Burning Heart was fucking huge. Huge. Yeah. Swedish hardcore label running the scene. My favorite record of all any 90s, early 2000s hardcore anything is Breach's debut, Outlines. In DC, you had like Crown Hate Ruin and these mm -hmm. new like genre collision bands where it was getting really yeah. intellectual. Oh, um, totally. They were Smart Went Crazy yeah, and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Oh man, I did not like Smart Went Crazy. <laughs> no, oh I love I love that kind of stuff. So you get on Victory right around this time when Victory is becoming a massive crossover threat. Right, because they had just signed Voice That's Fire, they had just signed Grade, they had these Burning Heart bands. So when we signed, their biggest record was Hatebreed. It had sold 70,000 copies. And that was like, holy shit, Hatebreed is huge. You know, we thought the crossover thing was happening. You know, we thought Boy Sets Fire, you know, you know, this is like, yeah, like we're, we have a chance here to do something. And basically, Tony kind of said, no, you don't. You know, he said, you know, if we had handed in a record that had a single on it, maybe it'd be different. Um, which to us, we signed to a hardcore label. You know what I mean? Like, what do you mean there's no single on it? Like, this is a hardcore label. Like, we don't hand in singles. To close the loop on the context, Revelation Records was just fucking printing money at this point. Right. And they actually called us before Victory and were interested. It was, um, who was, who was running? It was a Mike Ski. No, it was, geez, that's so rude that I can't remember right now. I'm going to have to go look. But he was actually the first person to call about signing Thursday before Victory and just ended up being like, nah, go with Victory. I thought Autobiography of a Nation was the single, but understanding a car crash, it just happens. And you end up on MTV. How does that happen with a label like Victory? Yeah. We do our first three-month tour 
and we're playing all basements and roller rinks and firehouses and living rooms and people are not showing up. Like all of the Midwest and the Southwest is like string of show after string of show of kids hiding in the house with the lights off, but we know they're in there so they don't have to put on our show. Like, and that's like, so that's when our record comes out, you know, we've taken off a year of school. Uh, We've made this record that we think is really cool, but we're starting to think maybe it sucks. And we were like totally ambitious and really stupid. And, um, you know, so we're like, you know, we're doing it and we're making a lot of friends, but it's starting to feel like it's our gap year. You know what I mean? We're just, we're just fucking around. And, uh, we did a video for understanding in a car crash because Steve, our guitar player, uh, was the only one of us that didn't go to Rutgers. Um, he went to North Carolina film school with, and worked on a crew that was, uh, you know, his crew of people was David Gordon Green, who became a director later on. They had this idea of doing a kind of like uh, verite video for understanding in a car crash. We had $1,000 of our own money that we decided to sp- spend, which we had, by the way, because we signed away all of our publishing to Victory for $2,000 advance, which we didn't oh realize we were doing. Oh, my fucking God. Yeah. No. We didn't get an advance. Two grand yeah, for all your pub? And we didn't get an advance for the record deal. So, like, all we got was $2,000 and gave away uh, publishing that they later sold for, I think, maybe $800,000. Full Claps on Victory with no money put behind it almost sold 400-something thousand copies. I got home the night before Christmas and my parents wouldn't shut off MTV. And I was like, why? I just have been on tour. Like, leave me be, please. And it was because they wanted me to see that literally every 10 minutes understanding in a car crash was on. It was on nonstop. It was crazy. But before that happens, you guys almost broke up, right? I forgot about that. I can't believe we almost broke up on tour with Murder City Devils who were breaking up. It was their last tour. They had decided to break up already. And we were just kind of seeing a really dark side of how people start to act towards each other and how people start to feel about like a life of music. And that tour was wild. I mean, we saw some, you know, the first Sparta show happened at Emo's and there were like so many fucking people at emos like like it was such a crazy scene like literally the whole crowd was throwing beer at the stage and the singer was throwing up every other word because he was already so hung over that the beer was like making him throw up we were seeing like all this really crazy stuff and yet every member was like totally jaded and bummed and like basically were telling us they regretted everything so were you were you reaching out to island during this or no 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 we had um we had met ben the anr guy that did end up signing us uh with you know with uh, a few other people but by the time <laughs> city by the light divider was being worked on la reed had taken over for leor cohen so basically like leor when he signed us he knew we probably wouldn't be the next nirvana no matter what everybody else was saying you know, when we signed to Island and everybody was saying we were going to be the next Nirvana, he said to me, right now, you're probably thinking that the best days are, are right ahead of you, but they're here right now. He said, you're never, probably never going to be bigger than you are right now. And you're probably never going to have more fun than you're having right now. So just like try and enjoy it. And he was absolutely right. We never got bigger than we were on full collapse. And it was just one of those things. He just saw it coming, but he's, you know, when I asked him, so why, 
said, why did you sign us then if you think we're not going to be the next Nirvana? You gave us a shit ton of money. You gave Victory $1.2 million to sign us. Like, you know, if we're not going to get bigger, why did you sign us? And he said, because I don't think your feet touch the ground. And I thought that was the weirdest thing for a major label and a major label guy that owns, you know, a label to say was, I don't think your feet touch the ground. You know, and then it was a disappointment commercially. We we sold the same amount as Full Collapse, only instead of nothing being spent on us, you know, millions were spent on us. So the L.A. Reed thing is the reason that you got forced into MySpace, right? So, yeah, so L.A. Reed, when he came in, he had me, uh, he, he, he came to see us at Warp Tour, and he freaked the fuck out when he saw us because... You know, we were a fucking killer live band. Like, no matter what you thought of us, it was just, if you saw us, there was like, it was crazy. We were really fucking good for a while there. You know, he came afterwards and he was like, you're a fucking rock star. Nobody told me we had a genuine fucking, in, you know, like a genuine star. Like, you're fucking unreal. Like, blah, 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 blah. All we got to do is get you guys some songwriters. Yeah, we write our own song. Isn't that a little offensive? <laughs> yeah. Like, we just got to get you set up with Quincy Jones and you're good. Totally. He was like, no, he was like, it's not even a question. Like, you need somebody to write you a song because you don't have any songs. Like, he was not, <laughs> he didn't pretend. He was like, you guys don't have songs, not a single song, but you're star. Yeah, but they, what the fuck? You had counting and. <laughs> so I love those songs. But the interesting thing was we turned in the record and he asked me to have a meeting with him. I went to the meeting and I got there and his desk is up on a little pedestal. It's a little bit higher than the side that you sit on. It has oh like Oh my fucking god. Yeah, and so he asked me to come in and uh, he said, "Hey man, I heard that you're going through a divorce and this record's about your divorce." And I was like, yeah. And he's like, tell me a little bit about that. And as soon as I started talking, he opened up the New York Times so fully that I couldn't see his face and just started reading. And I trailed off just talking nonsense because I knew he wasn't listening and he didn't, he just kept reading the paper and let me sit there for 10 minutes. Jesus Christ. So he really clearly after, you know, after we turned down songwriters, I think he was telling us that he didn't care about us at all and that he had no interest in hearing anything that I had to say, no matter how heartfelt it was. He just wasn't interested in us. When that's what happens right before the record comes out, you're just like, yeah, you feel like shit, you know, especially coming from Victory, who told us we had no singles. Like, it was one of those things we just thought, like, are we ever going to stop having to prove ourselves to people who don't like us? Like, we should have somebody that likes us putting out our records and we're just being told that we suck. You know, like, we're doing all this great stuff and we're just constantly told by the people who are supposed to support us, we're just constantly told that we suck. After all this has happened with Island and everything, Temporary Residence released a fucking record of yours. Yeah. How the fuck did that happen? So that happened like super organically. Basically, I just am a huge fan of, of Envy. There's a Japanese band on the label called Envy. Temporary Residence played this, they called it like Magic Weekend or something. It was sort of like Initial did back in the day where they had like all their bands get together and play like an anniversary weekend. And I went to the Envy Night and they were just crushing. They were amazing. And I saw this, the dude who ran the label got up and, and said like a kind of like overwhelmed thank you before Envy played. Like I, like, I can't believe that like my bedroom label thing has like three sold out nights at, 
you know, Irving Plaza, like this is, or Bowery, wherever the fuck it was, like, oh my God, I, I can't believe it. So I just kind of watched him, whatever, watched the band. And when everybody left, he was the last one there sweeping up the floor. Jeremy from Temporary Residence was sweeping the floor at the show. And I just walked over and, and started talking to him about how great Envy were. And he was like, yeah, cool, thanks. You know, like, you want to help me uh, sweep the floor? And I was like, sure. So I'm sleeping the floor with him and I say, like, you know, I'd love to get Envy to come out here to tour with us. Like, I think we could make it work. And he's like, uh-huh. You know, he's basically, like, just humoring me so that I would keep sweeping the floor with him. And uh, he's like, well, what's the name of your band? And I said, uh, Thursday. And he said, you know, there's already, like, a pretty big band that has the name Thursday. <laughs> <laughs> You can't give me that joke. You got to keep that joke for your book, dude. I know, right? And uh, and when he realized that I was in Thursday, he was kind of like, well, shit, you really want to help Envy? And I was like, yeah. We had some songs and I I had started writing again. I hadn't written since Full Collapse. I didn't write during War All the Time. I didn't write during City, really. I wrote At This Velocity on City. That's it. So I had some songs again, you know, which... Um, the rest of the band had mixed feelings about because, you know, a lot of the songs that I wrote were a lot of the really anthemic ones. I think they were very wary of all the anthemic stuff like i think they wanted to go in a more artistic sort of like obscure strange direction so then yeah so they decided you know we'll let you do your broad stroke songs on this split if you want to do that because it's a japanese band the culmination of this with you just martin amos and all the fucking writers and Bolano and all these guys you're reading you're getting completely psychotically literary yeah but you it si- was but psychot- you're right it was psychotically literary yeah but you signed to epitaph yeah. And Why? Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, man, you know that that whole thing that I told you about being on uh, on labels that that actually hate your band and think you suck. That that's that was just so demoralizing. Epitaph came to us and we're like, look, we've wanted to sign you since you know since we heard Full Collapse, and just so you know, Brett said I've always been jealous of Tony that he had you guys, and you know uh, we had a band that got totally mistreated by a major, and we were able to relaunch their career. You know, Bad Religion, blah blah blah. We knew it wasn't a good fit, like, stylistically. We knew that, you know. You're stuck on a label that you're convinced is, I'm I'm sure by that point, you're convinced is not ultimately going to be helping your career. Well, yeah, we were going in the opposite direction of Epitaph. You know, like, if we were trying to do, like, a, call it a return to form record, you know, if we were trying to get back to their energy and rawness of full collapse and sort of heavy with some sort of pop-punk elements, even though, you know, we never meant to put pop-punk on full collapse. It just sort of, like, we were, you know... We were steeped in that culture and it just, you know, it came in. Um, so if we were trying to get back there, I think, you know, maybe Epitaph would have been a great place for us. But by the time we were going for No Devolution, it was like, it was like, wow, what a weird fit for, you know, <laughs> for uh, for a label. Um, yeah, so you're right. We're out in the middle of nowhere with Dave Fredman. And <laughs>
basically at this point we all totally disagreed with what we wanted and so No Devolution never got written. There was never a point that we sat down to write the record. There was a point at which we called Dave Fridman and said, we have to cancel the sessions because we haven't written a record yet. And he said, how about this? If you cancel the sessions, I won't do the record with you. And we were like, why, man? What? You know, why would you do that to us? Like, we thought we were friends. We thought you liked working with us. And he's like, you guys are the most chronically over-prepared band of anybody I've ever worked with. You sap all the life out of the songs a year before you go into the studio. If you come in and you can't make anything in that first session, I'll give you another session. But if you cancel now and give up the chance to try to fly by the seat of your pants, then I'm going to say that you're just never going to get better because you're going to be too afraid to get better. And this is why I love the last record so much. I think I think the last record and Full Collapse are the two great Thursday records. Almost every day by noon we'd have a cool song. So they'd start recording it live around noon and by one I'd have a demo and I'd leave while they went and did the dubs and did everything made it sound good. And I'd go upstairs and I'd write lyrics and usually by dinner I'd have a song written to it and I'd hear like the good version of the song, which would sound really cool. And I'd go sing it uh, while getting drunk. You know, by that night, we'd have a song done that started that morning. And, you know, there were some really, you know, the whole thing was about the dissolution of my marriage, which, you know, it took five years, you know, from the time that I started getting divorced to the time that we broke up, it was a five year long process. 